0: People are gonna be writing about us for the rest of our lives for really, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit.
1: There's a lot of books about the Beatles, and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong.
0: where you go trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you beatles is beatles have beatles 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 it doesn't matter you know what what people say you can't live all your life by what they want
2: another kind of mind a different kind of beatles podcast by another kind of mind Welcome to episode two of Pizza and Fairy Tales, our four-part series on Lennon-McCartney in the 70s. In our first episode, we detailed John and Paul's long-distance reconciliation in the early 70s. We discussed John and Yoko's decision to take time apart, John's move to LA with Mae Pang, and how John may have taken this opportunity to explore his sexuality. After six months of separation, Yoko tells her lawyers that she wants a divorce. John responds by calling her bluff. Yoko retreats, thinks up a creative counter move, and hops a plane to London. In this episode, we dig deep into Yoko's possible motives for drawing Paul into her mind games with John, as well as Paul's reasons for playing along. We'll discuss other high points of John and Paul's mid-70s interactions, including the infamous Toot and Snore jam session the snarky note and Polaroid sent to Johann Wiener, John's last ever concert appearance in Madison Square Garden, the finalization of the Beatles' divorce, and the exciting prospect of a Lennon-McCartney reunion. This is Pizza and Fairy Tales. Okay, so we left off in early 1974. It's presumably sometime around here in the weeks after Yoko says she wants a divorce and John's like, cool, send the papers over, that Yoko goes to see Paul. And we can't know, we can't pinpoint exactly when, um, but we're thinking probably, most likely sometime in late February when we look at the known movements and itinerary of all of the major players, John, May, Paul, and Yoko. Yoko drops in to see Paul and Linda at Cavendish. Paul says in many years from now, Yoko came to London looking like a widow, a little diminutive sad figure in black. She asked Paul if he's going to see John, which I'm sure she already knows he is. (laughs) And then based on both Paul's and Yoko's accounts, It sounds like maybe Yoko gave Paul a bit of a sob story, like John's in trouble, he's on drugs, I don't know what to do. And Paul volunteered to help. So Yoko gave him a message to relay, which essentially is tell John he can have me back if he moves to New York and courts me and buys me flowers and puts a little elbow grease into it, (laughs) et cetera. And
1: when they they broke up, She came, Yoko came through London and visited us, which was very nice. And Linda and I was, just got married, was a bit before. We live in this big sort of old house in St. John's Wood. And uh, Yoko came by and we started talking. Obviously, the important subject for us is, what's happened? You've broken up then. You know, you're here, he's there. What's, what's happened? And she was very nice and confided in us that, yeah, you know, it's kind of broken up. But she has been very strong about it, but very... Not feminist but being a strong woman rather than just submitting to it all and she said no he's got to work his way back if he's to get back with me I can't just go and she couldn't She's, which is good you know I mean I, I think she'd have be been mad to just go and prostrate herself at his feet kind of thing. but um, she said no he's going to have to work it and I said well look I mean if I see him well are you still in love do you still sort of love me? she said yeah I said well would you be would you think it was an intrusion if I kind of said to him look man she loves you, and there's a way to get back, and you can... It sounds like people's songs. It sounds like those, I send all my loving from me to you. And I said this uh, to Yoko, I said, would that be okay? Would you hate that? Uh, but, you know, we might see him around, so I, I would like to be a mediator in this, because I think you, the two of you obviously got something pretty strong going. <clears throat> and she said she didn't mind. Um,
2: Although, why does he say, Linda and I had just got married a bit before, yeah, it was a little bit after we got married, like, okay, five he's, years, but sure. He's so funny sometimes. <laughs> we were living in this big old house in St. John's Wood, like, yes, Paul, we're familiar with it. Seven <laughs> Cavendish. Like. Also, what does he mean by not <laughs> feminist, but strong? <laughs> oh, Paul. Just shut up, Paul. Just say strong. <laughs> Move on. Just stop. Just stop not. <laughs> so <laughs> just to state the obvious, Yoko did not require paul to deliver this message because she was talking to john constantly like every day virtually so there's clearly some other motivation for enlisting paul's help here and yes he says that he volunteered but again you know yoko went specifically out of her way to see paul she wanted him to offer and he did so rather than why did paul help the question to me is why did yoko involve paul if she's playing games with john then what did she want to convey to him by getting paul involved i think it's Mm -hmm. safe to assume that she didn't engineer this message delivery to make john realize what a great friend paul was if she sees paul as a threat to her relationship with john whether we're talking artistically or publicly or personally or all the above then she's got no motive to encourage them to rebuild their bond right no no not at all i think it's like what you said to utilize him so let's just go through some of the reasons why she might be enlisting paul's help i guess the go-to explanation would be that yoko believes Paul has enough persuasive power over John that if Paul advises John to get back with Yoko, he'll just do it. Mm. But I don't really believe that. No. And I don't think Yoko believes it either. No. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right, yeah. Paul is not John's Bengali. Besides which, Yoko has no reason to think that even if he was, Paul would take this on board as his personal mission to force them back together. Like he's not gonna go in, regardless of his level of influence over John. Paul has no reason to go in guns blazing and try to (laughs) browbeat John into crawling back to Yoko. Like even if Paul did have that much influence over John, he wouldn't use it for that. That's a good point, yeah. He'd find a better use for it probably. Yeah. I think she is clear eyed that the best she's going to get here is for Paul to deliver a message. Yeah. So again, why does she want him to do that? If John wasn't taking Yoko's calls and she could not talk to him, Mm, then this would make more sense. You know what I mean? But it's like, that would be one thing. You're talking to him every day. Like, why don't you just tell him? Why do you need (laughs) Paul to go deliver this information in person? It's strategic somehow. And maybe it was as simple as, oh, if he hears it from someone else, that will put a little bit of a shine on it or whatever. Or maybe she chose Paul specifically because of specific reasons. Right. Paul never specifically says what month it was, but Yoko indicates that the conversation took place in 1974. And Paul was in L.A. by March, which would, by necessity, place this exchange in january or february and we know john and yoko have their little blow up about the divorce in early to mid february and we assume yoko saw paul after that and that's how we place this visit in late february it would make less sense for yoko to go to paul first and say john could win me back if he did x y and z and then tell john she wants a divorce Yeah. It makes more sense for it to happen the other way around. Exactly. Because then she's panicking, right? Yeah. After, after he calls her bluff. Right. Well, and maybe that's why, even though she was talking to him every day, maybe it was her ego just couldn't say the words herself. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Like maybe it was less humiliating to say it to Paul than to John. I mean, I think that Yoko's pretty capable of swallowing anything that might for other people might be humiliating or embarrassing in order to get whatever it is that she wants so I I think that she probably was fine appearing um not pathetic but but no no um, well she she played it right because Paul says in in his retelling at least in his 1986 retelling he says she was being very strong you know she didn't just take him Mm -hmm. back she was like, oh, he has to earn his way back. So whatever yeah. she said to him made enough of an impression on him that, I mean, maybe Paul's just being nice. Maybe he doesn't want to embarrass her too much, you know, so he's yeah. he's being uh, charitable. And if your last conversation with your estranged spouse was fine, send the papers, you can't really come back after that and say, if you want me back, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Like it kind <laughs> right, right. of yeah, has to that's come true. from a more oblique, angle which to give her credit like this is this is a pretty good creative move you know what I mean oh it is it's an interesting chess move she's like all Mm -hmm. right well how about this how about I go to Paul's house you can't leave the country bitch but I can (laughs) 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 so she's doing something all right so maybe it's possible that she's just planting seeds like she's planting Mm -hmm. the seeds of her story about how she kicked John out and how he needs mm-hmm. to do work to come back and stuff like that. Because again, she doesn't go and tell Paul about the whole divorce situation. No, she goes with John is, you know, in danger. And I can't just take him back, Paul. You understand. I just can't just yeah. take him back. And she knows that Paul or she assumes maybe that Paul will have to tell that story someday, or will choose to tell that story someday. Sure. I say that because Yoko really, really wanted John to tell Mick that Yoko had kicked him out. Well, like you say, that could be planting seeds. Mick is a celebrity. Even if he doesn't care personally, he might tell someone else. They might tell someone else or. Yeah. So it's a good idea to tell Paul too, because he's famous Mm -hmm. and he's going to, people are going to be asking him, how's John? So. And if she wanted to, she could always deny it after the fact. Which she kind of did at 98. Which she kind of did. Yeah, until she changed her tune like 10 Mm -hmm. years later. So, yeah. So maybe this is just her leaving like a trail of her story. Yeah. To help her save face down the road. Yeah. But then I wonder if she's also trying to say something really specific to John about Paul. Paul is part of the message Uh not just like Paul knows what's best and he thinks that it's best that we're (laughs) together but like maybe it's more like see Paul doesn't want you back John he's with Linda he's gonna stay with Linda and he wants you to stay with me yeah so so don't get any ideas John now that you're away from me and probably are planning to see him again don't be under any illusions that makes perfect sense if she's threatened by Paul, which I think we will establish <laughs> yeah. or have established um that that she was, it's a play. A way of just kind of like bursting his bubble. Yeah. You know, like whatever he might be thinking about Paul, and we don't know right what he was we thinking. We don't, we really don't. But I think that from what we know, it is safe to speculate that there might have been a part of John that thought, well. When he hears I'm free and clear, he'll come running in to try yeah. to get things going again. Which is going to feel good, you know. Of course. Regardless yeah, whether of what or not- happens. exactly. <laughs> We're not saying that John would be under any illusions, that Paul would just chuck Linda and the kids to the curb. Right. Uh, but I can see him thinking, or Yoko suspecting John is thinking, that if Paul tells John to get back with Yoko that means that Paul does not want to become very close to John again. Because Yoko and John both have that black and white mindset, love is a finite pie, you can only love one person in your life. Uh, So in that world, in that mindset, if Paul is saying to John, you and Yoko, you're good together, here's how you can get back together, I can see John interpreting that Or Yoko thinking John would interpret that as, okay, well, Paul doesn't want me back then because Paul knows that he and Yoko can't coexist. It's one or the other. Right, right, right. Here in normal reality land, someone can be married and also have a very close best friend and or like professional partner. But I don't know that in John and Yoko land that that's possible. And so to them, Paul saying it would be good for you to get back together with Yoko is Paul saying by necessity, Mm. you and I, John, are not getting back together. Right, because Paul knows what the deal is. So he's not going like, oof, thank God she's out of the picture. Now I can swoop in. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no swooping. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. There's no sweeping John off his feet. Yeah. And also, like... If the original wound, which we don't really know what that was, but if it had something to do with um, Paul choosing family over John, as we Mm -hmm. have posited, um, Mm -hmm. then this might reopen that wound a little bit. And Yoko would be in a prime position to know that um, for obvious reasons. She knows his deepest fears. She knows everything. (laughs) She had a close-up seat to the Lennon-McCartney breakup, yeah exactly for as closely as we've looked into this she (laughs) she she has gone way deeper than we have believe that this is her life she very unfortunately lives the lennon mccartney drama on a regular (laughs) basis she does to see it from from john's point of view you know we talked a lot about john using yoko as a shield to shut paul out Mm -hmm. but at this point in time without her John must feel super vulnerable even though he has May there and is talking to Yoko on the phone but it's not the same thing I mean Paul said many times like John and Yoko together were like a real powerful force yeah and I think that was her main purpose you know she gave him strength and she provided backup for him and 24-7 like always yes and was an incredibly strong gatekeeper very much so and put up with a lot you know yeah and mm-hmm. remained loyal so now that he doesn't have that he's just flapping in the breeze yeah and, and then yeah. you know paul bounces in with his wife and kids it's yeah. like how about i send you back to yoko oh that's yeah. ouch right <laughs> it, well it is especially if that was like the first one of the first things paul said if that is the scenario I would imagine that that would be shocking and a little hurtful to John. Yeah. Like, even though, like, objectively, Paul is saying nothing hurtful, he's just no. trying to be helpful. So, I want to mention here that I have read somewhere that Paul was actually like the second or third person that Yoko approached with the same story and presumably the same hope that they'd offer to speak to John on her behalf. I tried to source this memory of mine, but I couldn't find it. But there's something in the back of my mind saying she went and saw someone else before Paul. Probably Mick Jagger. <laughs> I think you hallucinated this information. <laughs> it's, it's entirely possible. So what does that say to you? If, if Yoko was trying to find somebody other than Paul to intervene and she went to Paul as a last resort then it's more is it more about the message itself rather than paul or is it more about i don't i i don't think we can know even if paul wasn't her first choice like she still chose him so she still would have had reasons even if it was a situation of well he's a little bit more of a risky play but it has the advantage of opening up that wound a little bit or communicating something extra to john by using him well she she certainly couldn't have chosen him without thinking about the repercussions of it exactly exactly So yeah so if, he's not a um he's not a neutral choice Let's no put it that way whatever the effect of having paul yeah. being brought into the the middle of their mind games whatever Mm -hmm. that's going to be is something that she would have thought through yes and decided yeah i'm gonna go with that yeah and maybe it was a case of like she had the idea first like she had the idea to send a messenger first and then she had to sort of you know workshop it a little bit and and figure (laughs) out right who was going to be the the best uh ambassador yeah, yeah, exactly. Or maybe she always intended to see Paul too. And she just happened to go to someone else before him. Like she went to several people <laughs> by design to hedge her bets, either because she hoped someone would intervene or just mm. planting seeds all over. All right. So here's here's Paul's version of what he said.
1: I said to you, hey, come on, come in. Come in the back room. I want to talk to you privately went in the background and I sat him down privately and I said look you know, I feel a bit like a matchmaker here but this girl she really still loves you. do you love her in uh, the divorce call, you know the divorce second I, said, I don't know what to do and I said well I'll talk to her so, so, so. she does still love you but you're going to have to work your little ass off man you have to get back to New York you have to take a separate flat you have to send her roses every fucking day you have to work at it like a bitch and you just might get her back and
2: why is Paul so aggro here? <laughs> why is he talking about John's little ass? <laughs> Work at it like but a she... bitch! <laughs> it's so out of place. Like, I don't even... A, I don't think he would have phrased it that way to John. But B, <laughs> and if that's the case, B, why is, why is he pretending years later that's how he said it at the time <laughs> every fucking day lennon you and your ass <laughs> i just don't, sometimes i don't i just i hear paul say things and i'm like i don't i don't know what I what's know. going on Sometimes, he's so weird and awkward like do so you awkward ever, do you ever speak words like a normal person <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's like maybe he's like you know what i did have power over john this is how i showed him maybe this is how i was the boss of him and that john liked it according to paul which I doesn't seem far-fetched not at all <laughs> this was was a little foreplay i am a bitch (laughs) (laughs) well i think those are normal words for him to use and i don't doubt that he you know in private that he was like yeah you gotta work your ass off dude yeah like it would be a kind of a normal thing to say it's just his delivery is so i don't know maybe he rehearsed this and got carried away a little bit Got too, got too far into character there <laughs> Yes, I don't know <laughs> It is worth a... like a bitch <laughs> Everyone says I'm a bad actor Well, watch this <laughs> Watch me sell the shit out of this Ridiculous dialogue <laughs> That I wrote myself
1: <laughs> You have to work at it like a bitch And you just might get a back which is sort of what he did. But you'll never hear that story. You won't hear that off them because, oh, I do mean it gives me too much, I'm too in the story then. They don't want me in the story. I prefer to think John, and if you hear it from John's point of view, it'll just be that he spoke to you on the phone and she said to him, come back into the work.
2: Yeah, that's Paul in 1986, and he's clearly you know sensitive about being erased from John's story which he yeah. definitely was at that point and from the John and Yoko story he's told the same story over the years he tells it in many years from now and it's you know just the same as this one from 1986 he didn't change anything mm-hmm. it's consistent um and we're not going to get into a big back and forth about yoko said paul said but just for the record just to cover our bases um yeah. yoko in 1998 said let Paul say what he wants to say. I feel that he has to say all of those things, but if he wants to get credit about it, why not? That's fine. I know it wasn't true. I know that John didn't come back to me because Paul said a few words. She sounds really bent out of shape about it. Yeah. 12 years later, in 2010, she changes her tune and says this. Paul and Linda visited me earlier in the year, 1974, in New York, and Paul told me he was going to see John in L.A. He asked what it would take for me to go back to John, and I said, well, maybe if he courted me. I want the world to know that it was a very touching thing that he did for John. He'd heard the rumors that John was in a bad way in a rough situation, and he was genuinely concerned about his old partner. I was getting calls from big time music executives who were telling me very rudely that I should pick john up and take him back there was talk that he could be suicidal although i knew because john and i were talking almost every day that things weren't that bad and that he wasn't their concern was not out of kindness they wanted to make sure that one day the beatles would get back together and he was the boy they needed but paul and linda were genuinely worried for him and it was so sweet that he wanted to save john I want people to know how kind and sensitive he was to him. Sure, they were two macho, very talented guys who had strong opinions, arguments, like most brothers. But when it came to the crux of the matter, when Paul thought John was in dire straits, he helped. Even though John was not even asking for help, John, Paul, all of them were too proud to ask for anything. He helped anyway. John often said he didn't understand why Paul did that for us, but he did. Yeah, that's interesting. So that story, like in the 1998 version, it's just like, whatever. Yeah, Paul can think whatever he wants. Well, you could read that and you could come away with the impression, which I think I did, that she was denying that it even happened. But if you look at it, she doesn't. But she also doesn't confirm that they even had the conversation. She doesn't deny or yeah exactly exactly really kind of impressive but she definitely manages to put across great disdain she's she basically she basically is like (laughs) paul is full of himself oh my god yes please Mm -hmm. as if well then why'd you make a special trip to visit him right and just engineer this entire thing yoko like come on yeah she Um, gives herself plausible deniability i feel because if if people were to call her on it and say wait no, you did visit him. And she could say, oh, well, I never said I didn't. I just said that Paul interpreted his influence in a way that was not correct. Exactly. But she still creates the impression in many minds who read that, that Paul is just a big fat liar. Well, and in the 2010 version, she doesn't say... That she um, went to them. Yeah. she, She doesn't say that she went to London... And she doesn't deny that she went to London. <laughs> she sidesteps that, and she says, yeah. "Paulina visited me earlier in the year in New York." Yeah. Okay, well, that's maybe true, <laughs> but unrelated. It might be factual. Yeah, she but... doesn't volunteer that she crossed the ocean, went to Cavendish, ding dong. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't go there. Anyway, in 2010, the, t- <laughs> the tone is super different because now it's very yeah. touching. Paul's genuinely concerned, genuinely worried, so sweet, kind, mm-hmm. sensitive. And she wants the world to know it. <laughs> like she's volunteering the story. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's like that really peculiar way of finishing where she says, John often said, not just not said once, John often said he didn't understand why Paul did this for us. Hmm. I think that's Yoko projecting. I think Yoko didn't understand. Because I, th- I think she has a hard time grasping that other people can do things altruistically. And so I could see her being like, wow, walked into that one, McCartney. I thought you were a more worthy rival. Yeah, right. I, I feel like John would not find that confusing at all. He knows Paul. Well, that's what I don't understand. And I also don't understand why people in general are perplexed about it. Like, what is perplexing about it? Totally consistent with his character. Exactly. Why would he not help them get back together? Yeah. If nothing else, by crossing the Atlantic and sort of making herself vulnerable like that, like that is going to play on Paul's sense of honor. You can't just say "fuck off" to the to the wife of your best friend who comes to see you and and is vulnerable yeah. and tells you like you can't, it's not the done thing.
1: Well, it's just it, not,
2: and he certainly can't. I mean, with his upbringing no. and his honor code exactly. and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that exactly. plays right into his, uh, his psychology or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, I it's hard for me to think that John was confused about why Paul did that. So Paul helps John and Yoko. Why is that? What do we think Paul's motivation is to do that? I think he firstly is just trying to help because he likes to help, but also I think he welcomes the chance to be brought into their inner sanctum Mm -hmm. because Paul has said many times that John and Yoko were so close and so insular that it was nearly impossible for him to penetrate their bubble So this would be a good opportunity to get in there, you know, by doing something kind and helpful. Maybe he can get on Yoko's good side and Mm -hmm. John's good side. If he thinks John wants to get back together and he does, you know, he does say that, that he did ask John first, is this what you want? So. I think that makes total sense. Uh, It's consistent with Paul's character. Like you said, he wants to be helpful. He's also just naturally diplomatic and, yeah. and knows it and that if nothing else he, he might have thought well maybe now Yoko will stop blocking my calls to yeah. John you know that yeah. that they she would become more of an ally right um yeah like he might see this as a little bit of a tit for tat like uh, you know we don't want to paint Paul out to be like this saint this selfless angel right <laughs> I do think that he loves John I do think that he wants John to be happy I do think he thinks he's doing the right thing. You know, I think he thinks he's being nice. Yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, I think, you know, maybe he expected or hoped for anyway, maybe he hoped for a little reciprocity. Reciprocity, meaning he would get to become closer again to John. Yeah. Right. And to Yoko, like maybe they would now be less adversarial. They could be buddies. However, the problem would be if John... Were to interpret that in the opposite way and think that Paul encouraging him to go back to Yoko must mean Paul does not want to get close to him again like he's you know fobbing him off on Yoko kind of thing yeah it'd be oh it'd be so tragic if Paul thought great this will this will prove to John I'm really his friend and John saw that as yeah you know, There's Paul not fighting for me again, like my mom and dad never fought to keep me. Even the most benign action, I feel like sometimes, if John was in a certain state of mind, could be interpreted by him as a rejection. Yeah. Even if it was meant as the absolute opposite. And we know, we know that, (laughs) not for nothing, but that Paul has a history of coming across in the opposite way that he is trying to yeah he is he's real good at that it's a good point and and paul's not always transparent about you know <laughs> whatever, no. however he's feeling so, no yeah and there there's no way that john and paul are ever going to have the conversation where john <laughs> is going to be able to say to him so apparently you don't care that if i get back with yoko then you're locked out again. And Paul's not going to say, "Oh, does this mean you're going to fight for me when you go back to her?" And you're mm-hmm. going to, you know what I mean? Yeah. So they're having kind of two different conversations again, maybe potentially. Well, they're having zero conversations. <laughs> <laughs> they're never articulating yeah. that probably. Right, probably not. Who knows what John's expectations are, but they definitely weren't that. That's got to be a curveball exactly yeah it would have thrown john off balance a little bit i feel and maybe that was as important as anything else to yoko and then i think you know maybe paul was genuinely concerned that john was drinking and drugging too much well yeah he knows that that's you know a danger zone for john exactly and it's if yoko specifically went to paul and told him that (laughs) (laughs) right um it's not it's not crazy for paul to think that john would be spiraling without yoko right because those two have been like super codependent for five years straight well yeah and you know john saying i can't live without her (laughs) right like (laughs) it's meaning (laughs) it yeah yeah and paul might not know what's going on with john and yoko because like as close as they were personally Talking on the phone in seventy two or seventy three, like I'd be very skeptical it. that John is like confiding about his marriage problem. About his all. marriage, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he. I don't think he'd ever do that. So, Mm-mm. agreed. So, I think in this case, Paul's motivations are pretty transparent. You know, like I mentioned, I don't think Yoko's trying to strengthen the Lennon McCartney bond, and I don't think she just believes that John will blindly obey Paul. I think it is a reminder to John maybe that you're never gonna get Paul back. Like it's not gonna be John and Paul songwriting buddies with women on the side like it was before. (laughs) That, That isn't gonna happen now because Linda's not on the side. No, she's in the band. Tom Doyle who wrote Man on the Run He says that Paul and Linda were in L.A. for almost two months. He has Paul in L.A. for March and April. He also writes that uh, Paul and John were spotted chatting and laughing together backstage at the Grammy Awards. And those were on March 2nd, which is very interesting for two reasons. It's very tight in terms of the timeline between like when John came back to L.A. and when Paul got there. And that's kind of how we did the math to figure out when did Yoko go to Cavendish? Okay. It also just seems super far-fetched to me that Paul was in LA for almost two months and didn't see John. You know what I mean? Like, so they're spotted together on March 2nd at the Grammys. And then we know about this jam session that's on March 28th, according to most sources, like Wiki and Beatles Bible. In May's book, she dates it as April 24th. But even, even assuming the March 28th, is correct that leaves 26 days in LA where we're supposed to believe that the McCartneys are hanging out but John and Paul are not seeing each other yeah how many times can you go to Disneyland (laughs) 26 (laughs) days and also like neither of them have any business at the (laughs) Grammy Awards by the way and they're spotted because they're around other celebrities so people chit chat you know people talk
1: if they were in LA
2: he was he was seeing John yeah there are also unofficial reports of john and paul being uh, spotted in a gay bar together around this time also which i think the reporter alluded to in that hit parader interview we mentioned in the last episode um yes. the one from 1975 where john says i was going to the gay bars putting it around i was gay and the reporter responds i only heard that about paul lately to which john replies oh i've had him <laughs> he's, no, he's good. no good he's no good <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so i think that that's what that's about right this, i don't think this is scandalous information um being spotted in a gay bar they have a history of going to them then liverpool in the early days um brian sure. took them around to gay clubs and and also in 1968 on their new york city trip to launch apple i think nat weiss took them out to a to a gay bar or something so point is they're not anti-gay bar they're not like (laughs) we're not going in there you know they're not anti-gay yeah um yeah going to gay bars is just a normal thing people do well and i think it was also kind of popular with celebrities at the time also (laughs) because diana ross was apparently the one who commented on seeing them at the bar together so i maybe it was after the grammys or something like that kind of makes sense would make sense. Like, well, yeah, why, why is she party type she there thing. hanging out with them? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like they have a secret like relationship with Diana Ross, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometime in mid-March, John and May rent that ridiculous five bedroom Malibu beach house, <laughs> <laughs> the Malibu Barbie beach house, <laughs> <laughs> which John refers to as an asylum for rockers because rockers really need an asylum from all the persecution they face (laughs) in the real in the outside world oh my gosh john he loves a slumber party (laughs) it's the greek island all over again (laughs) yeah except this time it's with may ringo harry nelson moon (laughs) and klaus vorman (laughs) klaus's girlfriend (laughs) oh why is klaus everywhere they would all go to the studio ringo and keith would usually hit the clubs every night sometimes john would too or sometimes john would go home with her so john and paul would have plenty of time to hang out yeah um if they wanted to do that on the down low if they wanted to do that on the download exactly so she says on april 24th 1974 right which is what all the Beatle books assume like oh this is the first time they've seen each the other. first time yeah yeah even though you know doyle says like they're like clearly spotted together on March. 22nd. yeah so paul shows up to the studio and uh to join that messy ass jam session and may writes i thought it uncanny that they had chosen to turn up the very first night of recording. Okay. How did they know? Yeah, exactly. How did they right. know? Yeah. yeah. To be fair, it is a little surprising that John
1: That's was able
2: weird. to keep that a secret from her for two months. I know. Like he's, he just he's a blabber mouth. Well, he definitely he never talks about Paul to her. So, anyways, mm. um, so May writes, Paul headed straight for John. Hello, John, he said eagerly. John, however, was a study in casualness. How are you, Paul? He replied softly. Fine. How about you? Okay. Hi, Ducky, Linda said to John, kissing him on the cheek. That's her little (laughs) nickname for him because she says it several times. (laughs) John says, hello, Linda. Okay. John and Paul made small talk as if they had been speaking on the phone two or three times a day and had just spoken a few hours earlier. It was one of the most casual conversations I had ever heard. And then she goes on to write, like, how could this be the the two Beatles who had been feuding in the newspaper <laughs> and all this herself? She's like, it's yeah. as if nothing had ever happened <laughs> because they had been seeing each other for two months on and off. You know, you know, she is so specific here as if they had been speaking on the phone two or three times a day and had just spoken a few hours earlier. Like, I just think it's an odd way of of putting it. Well, and she then might saying, be, she might be suspicious because like she said, it was uncanny that they had chosen yeah. to turn up the very first night of recording. So she's like, this is the first time I'm meeting them. And yet obviously they knew and right. John and Paul are acting like, they just got off the phone yeah. with each other. And so. Yeah. So maybe she's not clueless is what I'm saying. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. She suspects or knows and just doesn't want to say because. Well, that's what apparently I think. Apparently it's a big secret. although there's a lot of secrecy around yeah i don't i don't know why that's secretive although maybe she just she maybe she suspects but doesn't know anything so right 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 right. and sometimes she's home and john is at the studio um yeah (laughs) yeah but also like we know from gary in the elephant's memory (laughs) band that like john (laughs) would take calls at the studio and he and also that Paul would call the hit factory in 1980s. You know what? There's also a story about Paul talking to John when he's in the studio in New Orleans. So we know John and Paul talk even when they're working in the studio. The point is, like, they're most likely talking and seeing each other all throughout March. But for some reason, there's a subterfuge. So if John is hiding it from May, presumably it's not because may would care right why would she give a shit she'd um, be pro if anything exactly as she proves you know right <laughs> but yoko is gonna care and right. may reports to yoko so i suppose that would be a good enough reason for john to keep May out of the loop and also maybe it's sexier. <laughs> I don't know it's secret you know i don't know yeah yeah well, they so, don't like the pressure. They don't want me to say, oh, you're talking on the phone? When are we going to meet? All meet up. You know, as Doyle mentions, the press is already buzzing. And I can't imagine how stressful that would be. Like, Annoying. You, yeah, yeah, you've got like strangers obsessively Yes. Waiting for you to get back together. Are you guys hanging out? Are you, out? Are you now? doing music? You want a snow, Steve? so paul shows up to the studio march 28th it's quite a session (laughs) it's very uh i don't know shambolic i guess is the best way to describe it anyway may describes john as being very enthusiastic during the session doyle comments that john was freestyling wildly (laughs) which is pretty accurate and then he writes this Oh, gee, it's been such a long time, John said, addressing Paul, before bizarrely adding, when I look at Jack Lennon, I'm in love again. I feel him coming all over me. <laughs> Meanwhile, the disconnected riffing and soloing staggered on, which is probably the finest example that you will ever find of a Beatle author, like, duly noting, but steadfastly <laughs> refusing to comment. On John uh, and Paul's Psychosexual <laughs> dynamic. Something. Well, I mean To to your point John sees Paul And immediately starts singing About falling in love Again And getting jizzed on That should Like It'd be fairly Self-explanatory That Well, that deserves Some commentary Ah, gee It's been such a long time
0: When I look at Jack Lemon. I get it coming all over. <laughs> yeah, I just gotta say it. Brooklyn Bridge, San Francisco Beach, Strangler.
2: Um, you'll get different accounts from different authors. Like different authors sort of just editorialize however they envisioned the thing going down. Their own. But he definitely doesn't sound like he has it together. He definitely <laughs> does not. He's yelling at the control room the absolute whole time <laughs> for no reason. Johnny's doing the harmony on the drums. You just cannot stop his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. When I listen to it, it's it's like borderline cringy on John's part because he just yeah. sounds like he's spiraling. You know, you kind of want to go he's spinning. John, out. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah. Calm down. <laughs> it's fine. Take him by the shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Throw exactly. water on his face or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pull it together, dude. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> yeah. But in his defense, I, like we were just saying, I can't imagine how much Stressful. pressure there is here. So much Absolutely. pressure. And like he said, everybody is watching them. Mm-hmm. Like a minute yeah. ago, it was just everybody was being a jerk off and singing and like fooling around and sharing <laughs> vocals. And then all of a sudden, it right. was like, holy shit. It's called McGartney. It's a mood killer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or not <laughs> i mean it definitely <laughs> put him in some kind of mood what with the jizz and falling in love Sorry, comment
0: <laughs> hey hey you just keep off. i can't hear nothing
2: anyway so they jam and then according to may john invites paul and linda to their house so this is the first time may has met paul and linda when they were through playing, John and Paul once again picked up their casual conversation. It was as if they had not played at all. Then John said, "Why don't you come visit us? Where do you live?" asked Paul. And I gave Linda the directions. I was buzzing with excitement during the ride home. I can't believe how easily it went. It was as if you had never stopped playing together. Did you like playing with them again? It was interesting, John replied. Were you surprised when they came through the door? He remained silent. <laughs> The neutral expression on his face could have meant a million things one thing i knew it meant was that he didn't want to hear another question about it interesting a couple days later or the next day uh, paul and linda come to the malibu house if this is the visit where paul pulls john aside in the back room and gives him yoko's message may doesn't seem to know anything about it Um, Mm -hmm. she doesn't write about it in the book and she, she doesn't describe any moment when john disappeared into the back room um and you kind of think she would remember that well you definitely would think and also like if it went down as paul you know describes wouldn't john come out looking super weird so she basically just describes a pleasant visit she says they all walked on the beach together and then um the mccartney girl swam in the pool and then this is kind of a side note but there's a a weird thing in may's book at the end of both visits actually the one to the studio and the one to the malibu house paul says let's see each other again and john replies let's and Mm -hmm. it stood out to me because it's like word for word on three separate occasions and even though the words themselves are innocuous and it's like a face value normal thing to say but it definitely strikes me as like some kind of code because Mm -hmm. um it's so precise and it's exactly the same i don't think they're planning the overthrow of the government or anything i don't think like anything (laughs) um i don't think anything fishy is going on or or whatever no no but it does sound it sounds like a question and an answer paul says yeah let's see each other again like that's a question and john says let's and that means yes to whatever
0: the question is that he's asking. Your door. And you know what love is
2: Speaking of John and Paul at the Malibu beach house, there are a couple of photos from one of Paul and Linda's visits. One of those photos was sent by John to Jan Wenner editor of Rolling Stone, with whom John was on the outs in 1974. Wenner conducted the infamous "Len Remembers interview in 1970, when John was fresh from primal scream therapy. Uh, This is, of course, the interview where John was a complete dickhead to almost everybody in his life, but particularly Paul. Yeah, especially Paul. John later renounced or regretted the interview, but uh, in late 1971... Jan Wenner decided to publish the full interview as a book. John Lennon expressly denied him permission to do this and sent Wenner a furious cease and desist. But Jan basically said too bad and published it anyway. So needless to say, John was pissed and he held a grudge about it. Is John justified in trying to block this book? I mean, it's obvious why he would want to for emotional reasons because... It's bad. Makes him look bad and is mean, and he doesn't want to put it out there. But like you know, theoretically, if this was just some random interview with no regrettable material for John to want buried, right? Right? Is he justified trying to block a writer from publishing an interview that that writer conducted? Well, when I say he sent a cease and desist, I'm using that colloquially. He didn't. Yeah, not illegal. Right. Exactly. Yeah, he sent a letter saying, fuck you. I don't want this turned into a book. And John said, I want you to publish this letter in your oh. magazine. Oh. And obviously, Wonder was like, yeah, right. I'm not printing that. <laughs> I'm going to undercut my own <laughs> book. I guess if John had gone the legal route, he probably could have stopped it because- Most likely at the time, there was no discussion of it would be published separately as a book, right? But he didn't push it that far. That speaks to the question of like, is John justified in kind of fobbing off the responsibility for Lennon Remembers Mm. onto a third party? Or is it kind of a matter of, well, sorry you have to experience consequences for your own actions here well i think and i I touched on this a little bit in in my how do you sleep episode but i think that the people around john do have a little bit of responsibility but to make that case you kind of have to argue that john is not a hundred percent competent
1: between
2: Between Jan Wenner, Arthur Janov, Alan Klein, and Yoko Ono, like the, you know. All of his Lady Macbeths. Seriously. Like, yeah. uh, you know, all of those people, in my opinion, share share some responsibility. But, you know. I agree. You, on the other hand. Yeah. It wasn't their relationship with Paul. Like, it's a little, little bit like saying it's the mistress's fault for cheating. Well, sure. For the I husband mean, cheating <laughs> on his, his wife. Yeah, but, exactly. But no, I. I I do agree with you though yeah of course it's 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 john's relationship with paul that is his to protect or caretake yes but there are like four people sort of actively trying to damage it for their own material gain yeah that's kind of fucked up you know it's it's very fucked up and definitely reflects really badly on them if john had walked away from 1971 or whatever and been like i'm cool with how everything turned out i've stand beside it fuck it you know paul McCartney could die in a ditch somewhere i don't give a fuck then we'd have less ground to stand on here but the fact that he was bitter about it sort of tells a different story there are a lot of opportunists around him and they're you know they're all absolutely yeah you know getting whatever they're getting out of it but as uh, you know is it in his best interest i don't know yeah that's true yeah, But if everybody is playing into this you're the hero and he's the villain. Right, yeah. Everybody's saying it's not your fault. I feel like anyone would be influenced by that. You're I mean it's a, what it, everyone wants to hear for one thing. This is from Joe Hagen's biography of Jan Wener's Sticky Fingers. Hagen writes in 1974, Wenner received a mysterious cream colored envelope in the mail care of Johann Wiener and postmarked Los Angeles, California. Inside was a single Polaroid picture of John Lennon and Paul McCartney hanging out in a garden patio with friends. Linda McCartney hoisting a pool stick, Keith Boone in shorts and Roman sandals, and May Pang, Lennon's then lover, holding McCartney's daughter Mary on her lap. On the white strip below the image, dated Palm Sunday, 1974, was the message, How Do You Sleep?, Hagan adds, now the message was being repurposed to attack Jan winner Hagan has said elsewhere talking about this event that it's that John sent it. And he talked to Paul about it. So I take it as John saying, How do you sleep, Winner, with the role that you played in driving us apart? Like Jan helped drive the wedge between John and Paul by reprinting and printing and selling that interview. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that, I don't know, that he sends the picture like, look at us being happy now. They thought they could keep us apart. That's right. Yeah. Seems like the kind of thing you do to a parental figure who never approved of your marriage, you know, (laughs) and tried to tried to pry you apart from your unsuitable lover or whatever with a big dash of how dare you think you ever understood our beautiful love. We can quibble over how justified John is in offloading his Paul guilt onto third parties. But what's more important to the story is that John himself did in fact blame other people for messing up his relationship with Paul, which he valued. Yeah. So what I'd like to know is whether in John's mind, Wenner, Phil Spector, Klein, and Eastman, if they were to blame for creating The conflict, the rift. Or if he just feels like they sort of pounced on him and exploited the rift that was already there. Mm. Like in John's mind, was Wenner actively planting seeds of discord? Or was it more like, oh, you say you hate Paul now? Can you say that again? (laughs) A little Mm -hmm. louder, please. Right into this microphone. Is Wenner a shark or just a leech? That's that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess it depends on whether you think that Wenner is actively anti-Paul or if he just is sucking up to John at 24-7. Exactly, yeah. Well, I don't know because I was going to say, if you you are trying to suck up, like everybody who is sucking up to John in the early 70s is saying, yeah, Paul sucks, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Because that's what John wants to hear at that moment. Right, thinking they're following his lead. Right. Yeah. But then which when- John may or may not have appreciated. Yeah. See, yeah. He didn't exactly. necessarily love suck ups. Or so we're led to believe. Yeah, but he let them suck. So did he respect any of them? I doubt right. it, you know, but You're- he still took advantage <laughs> of it. I still need guys to play on this song. Right in John's mind did they turn him against Paul more than he would have done on his own based on that quote from 1971 it sounds like he blames the lawyers yeah who <laughs> I yeah. always hear is Eastman's Eastman's yeah Eastmans, yeah, yeah.
0: But you're obviously friends again I mean not well when we're not we're talking? not fighting too much it's silly and I always remember watching the film with the uh, Gilbert and Salma. Yeah, Gilbert and Silver. I always remember watching the film with um, Robert Morley and you know, thinking, We'll never get to that. Mm. You know, and we did, which really upset me, but I really never thought we'd be so stupid. But we did But like splitting like they like did, splitting Gilbert. and arguing, you know, and then they come back and oh, one's in a wheelchair me. twenty years <laughs> later, you know, <laughs> all that. I never thought we'd come to that because I didn't think we were that stupid. But we were naive enough to let people come between us and that's what happened, you know. But it was happening anyway. I don't mean yoke, I mean businessmen, you know. What, All of you, do you think they were, do you think businessmen were responsible? Well, no, it's for like anything. Yeah. When people would decide to get a divorce, you know, you just, quite often you decide amicably. But when, then when you get your lawyers and they say, don't talk to the other party unless there's a lawyer present, then that's when the drift really starts happening. And then when you can't speak to each other without a lawyer, then there's no communication. And it's really lawyers that make divorces nasty.
2: Something else I noted is that John says a few different times in the 70s that he wishes he hadn't made how do you sleep so specifically about paul like he wishes it had been more of like a general (laughs) diss track or whatever so he could continue to play it like too many people you mean something that could plausibly be not about a specific person yeah like something that maybe the the listener wonders who it's about but it's not quite so blatant that isn't dear Paul McCartney basically dear Paul McCartney you suck suck. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so I do kind of see this Polaroid story as like John acting out that wish you know yeah yeah. he's finally repurposing the phrase yes Yeah. yeah and poetically yeah, so I, th- I think that was kind of nice. In addition to sort of uh, poking Wenner, it's making him feel a little bit better because yeah, sort of helping him sit with the repercussions of how do you sleep a little bit. He's like, see, it is now it means something else. Exactly. It's about me and now also about you, Johan Wiener. I can use it for whatever I want. doesn't have to be about Paul. I wonder if John was kind of hoping that Wenner would publish it. Oh, that is a good question. Because it's, a, you know, it's sort of embarrassing to call up, you know, like Paul said in that clip, he's like, you know, what am I going to do? I'm not going to call up the right. newspaper and be like, hey, I'm talking to John. Now we're b- good buddies, you know, like, that's, yeah, yeah, true. you can't, you can't make that phone call. But if you right. but a picture a speaks yeah there you go thousand words so after that meeting over the next few weeks may says that john suddenly quits drinking and starts reading and spending time alone (laughs) he's been like you know boozing it up but he stops doing that and then he basically stops talking to her Then after a few days, he's like, I'm moving back to New York and you're not coming with me. (sighs) Just bam. Needless to say, she's upset. Anyway, uh, John moves back to New York with Harry and doesn't call Maeve two weeks. So she's just out of the loop. Yoko doesn't call. John doesn't call. And she's just in that Malibu house with all those (laughs) rock stars. (laughs) Your services are no longer required. She's like, I mean, I was John's girlfriend and people were nice to me when I was John's girlfriend, but like without him, no one even talked to me. She's like, Keith Moon is the only one who talked to me. These guys are fucking terrible. Garbage people. They are garbage people. So yeah, so he doesn't talk to her for almost two weeks. John and Harry, meanwhile, are living in the Pierre Hotel in New York City. Finally, after about two weeks, John starts calling her. And after a couple more weeks, he says come back to me, you know, and she, and she's happy and she returns to New York. So he's gone for like a month in New York without May. And he's living at the Pierre hotel in an adjoining (laughs) suite with Harry Harry Nelson. Yeah. So like he has his room and then Harry's next door and Harry's always getting locked out of his room and like banging on John's (laughs) door. And John, it's like, God damn it. He has to let Harry in anyway uh may is excited she returns to john they shack up in the pier for a few days and john tells her la was making me crazy i don't want to drink anymore everybody thinks i'm a crazy person <laughs> and he says that uh, he and may should get an apartment so that when julian comes he can stay with them which is very sweet and then he also is like "Fuck phil specter and that dumb oldies album mm-hmm. yay Yes, fuck Phil Spector, we co signed <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, John says, I'm, I want to start a new album, which then becomes Walls and Bridges. So it appears that John did return to New York pretty quickly after Paul spoke to him. We, we really just don't know what John was doing while he was in New York. I mean, he was in New York working on Harry's album. We don't know if he was courting Yoko at the time, but I, I guess oh, it's possible. Could be um he's definitely talking to her and you know he's telling may that nothing's going on but mm-hmm. well you know
1: that's what yeah, ex- he
2: would say that though <laughs> exactly so what, we can't what else really is he gonna that. say so and this is june so this is the start of the summer of 74 uh john and may stay in may's apartment for a little bit she kept her new york city apartment and then um they finally take the plunge and get their own apartment. And Yoko comes and looks at the apartments and helps them pick one out and weighs in on her pendant and stuff like that. Yeah. Sure she does. She's like, there's an empty apartment in the Dakota. And May is like, oh, no. No, <laughs> yeah. no way. So huh? they finally take this place on the east side that some, some friend had recommended. And then May writes, we had been in our new apartment for only an hour when the phone rang. Our first call was from Paul McCartney. In LA, we had told Paul and Linda they could always call the Dakota for our number. When Paul discovered we had moved in, he wanted to come over and say hello. The McCartneys had an uncanny knack for showing up whenever a new (sighs) event happened in our lives. (laughs) Okay, I think that she knows an uncanny knack. No, I think she totally knows (laughs) that they were in communication. And this, this is, you know, the closest she can get to saying it outright for whatever reason. I don't think she's in the dark. That's my take. You know, she's used the word uncanny twice. Yeah. Interesting. Somehow Paul always has our number and knows where we are. Yeah, and calls us an hour after we get there. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Or sh- like- Or shows up. Almost as if he knew we would be there already. Yeah. So- sounds like paul is a little bit more in the loop than he yeah. that's on like i'm assuming he's just getting information from john and for whatever reason yeah. john is keeping that from may for some reason you know my first guess would be so that it doesn't because get back to answered. yoko yeah she answers to yoko yeah because may doesn't care right yeah she'd probably be like great exactly Good for you cool yeah yeah paul seems perfect yeah. nice sure let's invite him over why are you being weird Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why Why are you whispering john <laughs> but it's funny how she doesn't really speculate on what's going on and she definitely doesn't confront john about it at all no. or ask him no. in any way at this point like i said john's been in new york for a month already so yeah it's possible that paul was seeing john at the pierre before sure may showed up when paul discovered we had moved in oh what <laughs> you've moved into an apartment i just in <laughs> the call your new apartment <laughs> sure glad this random number that i had that i had no reason to have connected me. it's just uncanny so paul and linda show up julian's there And May writes, Julian had not seen Paul in years. And Paul's appearance added to the surprise of suddenly finding himself living in an apartment with John. At 10, Julian had a storehouse of memories from his childhood as the son of a beetle. And he told Paul he could clearly remember Paul and his dad playing together. And then May comments that John and Paul, quote, liked each other. Oh, she she thought they seemed to feel fragile and uncertain. Mm. And then they also do that, let's see each other again. Let's we do that bit again. Hmm. And then May concludes as she and John went to bed that night, that they'd quote, never been happier. Hmm. So take that for whatever it's worth. Maybe they wouldn't have been quite so happy if they had moved into the Dakota (laughs) Dakota. Or if Yoko, after apartment shopping together, Yoko would have said, you know, I'm just going to sleep here tonight with you guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I really like this place. I think we should look for a three bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I I feel like I need to make a little disclaimer here real quick. (laughs) (laughs) That when I joke about things like that and I say things like, oh, of course she does about... (laughs) yoko apartment (laughs) shopping with john and his mistress but i don't mean that yoko is evil for doing these things she's doing them to john john is her victim um i just mean that she and john who super plays into it are enmeshed in absurd ways i read these things about them and i feel like i'm in an edward aldi play it's Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? <laughs> yes. Like insane mind games constantly. It's very striking, and sometimes even a little bit <laughs> darkly amusing to they, me. They are hilarious, so ridiculous, <laughs> just—it's so dysfunctional. But they think that they're like that—they're not like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so funny, is yeah. It's fine they're- to be unconventional and polyamorous and all that jazz. I'm just. It's it, true. It, they're it's quirky. Just, Let's put it that way. They sure are. I'm really kind of wondering what John has in mind at this point. Maybe he's just rolling with things and he has no clue and he's just living day by day. <laughs> right. Like maybe he's letting Paul sort of steer the ship between them. I mean, yeah. like their relationship or whatever. But we know that previously, before uh, John and Yoko split up, that John had an all or nothing mentality with his relationships, right? Yeah. But then in 1972, when he did the Sometime in New York City album, he realized that he didn't like collaborating with Yoko. And, and yeah. I think it's because he didn't like the sort of competition and conflict. Like he'd had enough of that. Dynamic. right like when it sure. worked between John and Paul it was really good and it spurred them to great things and it was exciting and sexy and all that kind of sure. stuff but then even with them it got to a point where I think it was overwhelming for John and he was like this is ruining our relationship and I don't like it I just yeah. want to stab you right now <laughs> so I think the idea that that Yoko is all these things together a creative a love partner and a sex yes. partner i think it works because fundamentally they are not competitive they are not creatively competitive she's in a different field than yeah. he is you know yeah she's not making number one hits like it's n- no. she is not threatening to john in any way they kind of complement each other They work in tandem though they don't they're not compete they're not competing for number ones or for the a-sides as he he even said that in 1971 he's like as soon as she wants an a-side then you'll see a real problem i mean he is he's pretty (laughs) blunt about it right yeah so um to return back to the 1972 quote again the one to to sandra sheavey your best friend can hold you without whatever you know john is saying there that yoko is the whole package right she's love mm-hmm. creativity and sex all rolled into one and he said that elsewhere also like very clear about that john is saying that that's the that's the additional element that yoko brings yeah. to the picture yeah. that makes her the the full package it's the the yeah. sex the sexual element this is just a little bit of relationship algebra here so <laughs> by that math okay if yoko equals paul plus a lover Wouldn't then Paul plus May equal Yoko? So like if if John has May and Paul, he doesn't need Yoko? Correct. Oh I mean, I'm saying like mathematically that sort of adds up to the same thing. It does. If he's got Paul back and he has May at night to hold his hand, yes, then he has less need for yoko sure yeah like couldn't that be more of a situation that that paul and john had in the Beatle days when they were the number one to each other where may is supportive and yeah and loving like according to May, like may seems to think that that's the situation that they're settling into you know and she's and she's cool with it she's encouraging of of paul and john getting back together she's like i think it would be great you know you're clearly inspired by him and you guys did great work together and why not and i'll be right here i'd love to be just a normal girlfriend that would be great exactly exactly (laughs) like you can come home to me at the end of the night and it's all cool and i don't need to be sitting i don't need to be there when you guys are doing stuff either i don't want to be there (laughs) (laughs) i want you to go do your thing it's fine i don't want to be with you 24 7. so maybe that's a you know maybe that's the situation that john is trying on for size and again it is sort of a return to john and paul when they worked best when they were most functional Mm -hmm. you know in like the in like the prime beetle years before Mm -hmm. um before india Yeah, so John is sort of at least recreating the Cynthia dynamic with May, and now he's got potential for Paul to step back in as close friend, collaborator, whatever, platonic soulmate. It's a little bit of a dicey situation because John has to sort of recalibrate, like, how much Paul do I want? But like, this is sort of the best case scenario. If they can go part time and be cool, which they've Mm -hmm. never done before. Like normal <laughs> people like normal just not jealous yeah. and weird and, and all that kind of stuff and he's in the city he loves you know he's not out in weybridge he has yeah. music friends that are like engaged with him so maybe this would be workable for him yeah i mean it, it is sort of a, a, a good scenario yes provided he is willing to let go of the things that Yoko provided that he won't get from Paul or May. And certainly never got from Cynthia either. From the very beginning, Yoko gave John her undivided attention. That, I mean, that's how he, she got his attention by essentially stalking him yeah, the, for a year. The, the, yes. And then when they hooked up, she leaned into his growing like superstitiousness and magical thinking. Yeah. She enabled his paranoia and his martyr complex. And she had the naus to manage his PR and his finances. All of that, that is not nothing. That's true. <laughs> I think there's a big part of John that wants to be dominated and taken care of. Yeah. In that way, like in every detail of his life. Yeah. Yoko does provide like a, dominatrix isn't the right word, but like a, or maybe it is, I don't know. Like But Like a benevolent dictator kind of. Yeah. 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 Or maybe Paul's the benevolent dictator and- Well, he is, but a lot less. Like he's not gonna give John a point by point- No, no, for sure. Interviews, you know? Absolutely right. And he's He's not not like, John, here's your allowance- right he's not going to micromanage John he might manage John yeah that's a good some degree yeah yeah but he is not going to micromanage him except maybe in the studio if they were if they were that's yeah no no but you're right that's that's a good distinction because Yoko does micromanage him and he really likes it like I'm assuming he really likes it because he responds to it well he, he keeps going back for it yeah yeah I'm sure that sometimes he's like oh and and maybe that's part of the appeal he gets to kind of have yep. this little rebellion, rebellion. against absolutely a mommy absolutely you know. yeah but at the end of the day she is still there for him and she's telling him what to eat and what time right, right. to wake up and when to take a shower and whatever whatever yeah yeah but like you say if he's beginning to feel he doesn't need that level of handling anymore then he might be ready to explore the idea of less extreme relationships I would think so. I mean that's what it sort yeah. of sounds like. And that's definitely the vibe that May gives. In my opinion, I think that's what Paul wants. I Absolutely. think Paul, Paul is down with that situation. Yes, that is like the ideal for Paul. Yeah, he's he's got his cake and eaten it too. I mean that would yeah, be totally perfect situation for him. Yeah. So again, I guess it just comes down to Like how that sits with John. Like, is it comfortable for him? And can he handle it long term? Yeah. Anyways, it seems like from that point forward, like they kind of see each other quite a bit throughout 1974. I mean, Paul is busy. He does a stint in Nashville. Um, He's getting his band together. He's doing the one hand clapping. But I feel like he's making a lot of time for John, you know? Seems to be, well, especially if they're seeing each other more than than the official record reflects. You know, again, he, he has to because John can't leave Absolutely. the country. Yeah. So, if they want to see each other, then Paul has to be in the, in the U.S. Yeah. So, things are peaceful between John and Paul. In interviews, John continues to call Paul his friend, and all signs point to a relationship well on the mend. So... Fall rolls around and Yoko's on the phone with May at some point, And she goes, you know, I'm thinking of taking John back. And May's like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> And yeah. John it tells her like, no way. It's over. Yoko knows it. Don't worry about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, may or may not be what he really feels. But <laughs> oh, there you go. In November, John agrees to make an appearance on stage with Elton John to sing their number one hit, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. They also performed Lucy in the Sky, and I saw her standing there.
0: And we thought we number of an old fiance of mine, Paul Paul. This is one I never sang, old just
2: so John refers to Paul here as his estranged fiance. Which, again, is the kind of thing that Beatle people like to mention and sort of chuckle at knowingly, but they don't really ever examine it. I don't know how you miss big, grand, bold gestures like this. (laughs) But if we're trying to understand what's going on with them, which, you know, we're making a sincere effort in this (laughs) series to do that, then we should really look at what they're communicating to each other. Right, at the words um, that they say. And in this case, the words that John says on stage in front of Elton John, God, and everybody. Yes, there is a danger of over-examining stuff and like, but of course. That, this isn't the case here. He's saying this on <laughs> stage for posterity. He knows all eyes are on him. All eyes are on him, Absolutely and it's a pressure time for them when like the world is dying to have them get back together and stuff it's not like nobody's gonna notice right <laughs> he doesn't think he's slipping something slipping dry. this under the radar yeah, yeah yeah yeah. like he definitely knows paul's gonna hear it right away and it's gonna mm-hmm. go on the record so to speak forever yeah. it's not like someone put this on his itinerary and then he kind of off the cuff oh this one yes <laughs> he prepared yeah. that you he can, knew you can even tell yeah he says it i I feel so to take a look at what they're saying i definitely think the implication is that john and paul have unfinished business right i think it's like a pretty straightforward way to interpret that things are not resolved they're not over yeah they're not exes it's not a past relationship they're more like partners who got lost some somewhere along the right. way that whatever distance exists might be temporary reconciliation is a possibility and the word fiance instead of spouse boyfriend partner is also interesting because it implies that there was something unfinished about the relationship at the time that it was disrupted like there yes they, there was more for them to do that they didn't get to when they separated yeah Yeah, the word fiancé suggests they almost made it across the threshold, Mm -hmm. but they never quite sealed the deal. It's not my ex-boyfriend, it's my fiancé. And that is such a different mood. It implies that there's more in store for them. And that's kind of a big deal because John and Paul did so much already together. It's like, what else do you want to do? What more is there? Well, John thought so again, the crazy part is that John's saying it in public on stage for the record. And it's not yes. a lyric that, that people can say, well, that's no. obviously about Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness he said Paul's name. Cause even if he just said an old, strange Beyonce, I feel like they would have oh, a way to make that about Yoko too. 100%. So, yeah. This quote is public to the max. I mean, he's declaring his love because you're not, you don't get engaged to someone you're not in love with. (laughs) Right. Right. And so uh, hopefully we can use this quote to counter any stupid, tired arguments about this romantic language in a song or whatever couldn't be directed at Paul because he would never use that language about Paul. Well, he did. He did on stage and it's on tape. Also, we have a quote from Tony
1: King about this, and he, no, he was considering writing with Paul again. He wanted to work with him again. He just couldn't. He just couldn't work out the common ground at that time. It was still all that apple stuff, you see, in the way. You know, John loved Paul, no doubt about it. I remember once he said to me, "I'm the only person who's allowed to say things like that about Paul. I don't like it when other people do." He didn't like if other people said nasty things about Paul, and. He always referred to Paul as his estranged fiancé and things like that, like he did on that record. I saw her standing there with with Elton on Madison Square Garden, and he knew that his relationship with Paul was very important to him.
2: Yeah, Tony says here that John always referred to Paul as his estranged fiancé, like he did on that record, meaning this wasn't something that John made up for the stage either right this was how he (laughs) thought of ball and how he (laughs) referred to him in private at least to tony and elton i guess tony says always i have to say like part of (laughs) me does wonder if king is exaggerating just because i've never seen anyone else say john would call things like estranged fiance just in casual conversation i know he compared them to a married couple pretty often But fiance has such a different connotation. Yeah. But what was the marriage you were waiting for and never got? Why did you never get the wedding day of your dreams, John? What does (laughs) it mean? (laughs) That's a good question. But like, why would Tony be exaggerating? Like, why would you not take it at face value? Well, I mean, he might, What I I guess what I'm saying is he might be talking about things we already know that John would say about Paul, that they were, you know, they used to be married and la la la. And then he's lumping that in with the estranged fiancé comment, which again to me is like a whole other world, a whole other world from the, yeah, Paul and I were married. He was my spouse. We had babies together. John was always saying that but that the strange fiance specifically was just a one-time madison square garden i know but but like but why because no no one else has said that that's all yeah but tony's talking about to him but why but why would he say that only to tony because tony's gay to be blunt about it it's a code switch strange fiance and things like that like 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 he did on that record not um remember when he referred to paul as his estranged fiance on that record i know i know it's crazy i guess i'm just throwing that out there as a well it took me a yes. moment too because that's kind of how we're so trained to to think that there's nothing there you know what i mean mm-hmm. so we downplay everything right and, or to know, second uh, guess just second guess even like really blatant yeah stuff yeah i know so i took it that way at first but then when you read it again no that's not what he's saying at all it's not what he's saying just he's he's specifically making the point that that was not the only time john did that that he did that frequently obviously it's a matter of interpretation but it makes complete sense to me that john would be able to code switch if he's with tony and elton True. Versus when he's talking to, you know, Howard Cosell or whatever, <laughs> like he, you speak differently with other queer people than you do with straight people. That's just, a, that's just, that's sense. Yeah, that's true. It's significant too. And I think maybe we already said this a different way, but so because he's been doing that, it's not like he said this off the cuff on stage. Like he's literally said this before out loud to people, you know, in private and then decided, yeah, I want to do that again into a microphone on stage (laughs) after Um, I sing one of our early songs that's my plan and there's an interview with Alan Friedman from January of 1975 so like two months later a month and a half later where John is talking about the Madison Square Garden concert and he says yeah it was weird to sing that song without Paul and that's not the vocal part I usually did But he even says in that interview, yes, I was singing it. I was wondering what would Paul think? Yes. You know, (laughs) (laughs) clearly you want. You want a reaction. Yeah. And he definitely knows Paul's going to hear it. So it's like it is it is for Paul's ears, but he's got I'm sure he has more (laughs) courage to say it again because he's uh, surrounded by Elton and his crew. And, you know, that's true. Is it a friendly, um, secure environment? You know, absolutely. So. If estranged fiance connotes that their relationship left something unfulfilled, what do you think John means? What did Lennon and McCartney fail to do? In their 10 years together when they took the world by storm and became the most successful <laughs> yeah. band of all time. Changed the face of popular music, yeah. Right, what's, what's left? Um, I don't think it's musical. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um no, like nobody would would claim that their professional relationship was unconsummated. <laughs> right? right? Like that that, that, right. that analogy falls flat. It's not yeah. They didn't flirt with with creating together. Like they did it a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah. no that's not the threshold that hasn't been crossed. He's talking about something personal yeah which might involve music and writing together but that's not the point of it right so maybe it goes back to what john told sandra Shivi in 1972 that we discussed in the last episode the i'm not homosexual or we could have had a homosexual relationship and maybe that would have satisfied it right satisfied something was not satisfied (laughs) and continues to be unsatisfied yeah correct that is still unsatisfied in 1974 yeah four and i think we agree that by homosexual relationship he means like a full-blown grown-up romantic relationship right not just not just sex maybe that is what john sees over the horizon or the threshold maybe maybe and then can i just say like besides may Pang. The person who spent the most time with john in this period is harry nelson even with yoko he's not spending that much time john saw her a few times but it was mostly over the phone but he's spending a lot of time with harry he's living yeah. with him in in la in new york oh yeah you know they're going to palm springs they're making um, music they're getting trash together they're living drinking together. buddies they're roommates yeah. and they're collaborators in this time Yeah so harry's got a very unique and intimate point of view right yeah this is a this is a guy who said that he kind of fell in love with john in this in this time period like he really liked john a lot and he was very open about it very frank about it and he was also very candid about the fact that he knew it was basically one-sided because
1: he said
2: john was only close to the other Beatles. you know
1: i miss him very much Uh, I like to say I was a very close friend. I wasn't a very close friend. No one was a very close friend to John other than the Beatles.
0: Did he miss the Beatles? Was he mournful about what happened over the? You know.
1: Someone told me a few minutes ago they saw uh, John walking on the street wearing a sign saying a button rather saying I love Paul. And this girl told me that said she asked him why are you wearing the button, and says I love Paul. This is because I love Paul.
2: so yeah. as much as as much as Harry likes John, he knows what's up. He knows he's on the outside compared to the Beatles, but I think that gives him some credibility, honestly, because he's not he's never trying to like elevate his, yeah, as everybody Absolutely. else does. And they were like, "I was John's best friend every every dude's favorite thing to say about John exactly. And Harry's like, nah, but. <laughs> Harry's really important because he gives us some really candid and, and credible testimony about John and Paul and much in the same way that nobody in the Beatles circle will go on record about Brian and John. No one will really officially comment about John and Paul other than to say they loved each other, you know, other than to say nice generalized things. Mm -hmm. Um, which again is understandable because it's a delegate topic and nobody is trying to embarrass either one of them or give the wrong impression. Sure. And then have to answer for it. So it's very, it's very understandable. But Harry Nelson has said in three separate quotes that John loved Paul, that John wanted to fuck Paul. That's a quote. And that John told him once at three in the morning, how he fell for Paul, which is also a quote. As far as I know, that's as bluntly as any insider has ever put it. John loved Paul, he wanted to sleep with him and he was in love with him. And Harry Nilsson has no discernible agenda. The only other insider statement that I think even approaches being that blunt is from Yoko when she said, you know john was so angry that i couldn't help wondering what it was all about implying that there was some romantic feelings on john's part and when she also said there was something going on there from john's perspective not paul's so those are from the the norman bio which most fans are familiar with now and those are consistent like Yoko's yeah. version and harry's version is consistent absolutely it's a, i mean it's exactly the same story yeah we've laid it out pretty clearly that seems to be the story and again all of this is on the record everybody has access to this information (laughs) but but people are too nervous to talk about it I think yeah um and again I understand why because nobody's trying to embarrass Paul nobody's trying to like imply things that we have no business implying you know like We're not trying to spread rumors. We're just trying to figure out what's going on. And honestly, like somebody has to start talking about it. There's a certain scenario I have seen play out many, many times over the years in the Beatles universe, online spaces, podcasts, books and articles, et cetera, et cetera. Wherein most people seem chill now about acknowledging maybe one, maybe two of these things you know, things that we've mentioned earlier, the fiancé, the Jack Lemon quote, um, and they will indulge a were-they-in-love type discussion in a sort of academic, let's-conduct-a-thought-experiment way. I mean, at this point, they don't really have any choice because of the quotes from Yoko in Philip Norman's bio about right. how John considered Having an affair with Paul, and how she wondered if there might have been a romantic or sexual element to the breakup because of John's anger, which was so deep and passionate. Like they, it's it's unavoidable. Yeah, (laughs) it can't just be ignored anymore. But then, if that conversation starts to deepen and more supporting facts get presented for the case that John Lennon was in love with Paul McCartney, then the tide turns very suddenly and those previously chill people get very dismissive and confrontational. And we think this is really unfortunate and counterproductive to understanding the Lennon-McCartney story. For one thing, it is not a wild, scandalous accusation to speculate that a human being might have been in love with another. Yeah, seriously. Being, being in love is a normal thing to be. Yeah. And it's normal for that to occur in a close relationship It's normal, but it also changes everything about that relationship. And therefore, it's an important thing to know if you want to analyze that relationship. Here is the quote that Phoebe mentioned from Harry Nelson. He says of John that, In a late wee hour of the morning talk, he once told me, I'm just like everybody else, Harry. I fell for Paul's looks. (laughs) That dumb, sweet little face. (laughs) delinquent (laughs) choir boy yeah you can kind of see that sometimes watching john stare at him intently follow him with his eyes yeah and he loves that expression i fell if i fell Uh (laughs) uh-huh super (laughs) romantic (laughs) dumb romantic (laughs) sweet dumb john (laughs) i mean it's not something you're interested in discussing that's fine but with Steams me is when people act Mm. like the conversation is stupid or the discussion. My favorite is dangerous or slanderous or whatever, like have some respect. Examine your own reactions. Think about how much the story changes. If it's love that broke up the Beatles, not boredom or a power struggle or entropy. Love. This band is a big deal if for no other reason than because people make a big deal out of them there are you know museums and like university degrees on them and uh, you know we're talking about people's relationships and so that's not an exact science yeah it's going to be a little bit messy and a little bit subjective and you know but this is it's art we're talking about so I'm sorry that it's not so cut and dry but you can't you know, a statistician is never going to figure the story out. No, it's just no. not how it works. And I completely understand being skeptical, by the way. I mean, we should all be skeptical. Sure. That that's makes sense. That's a good attitude to have. And I also get why people are suspicious of titillating rumors, but this isn't even titillating. It's mostly just sad. Yeah. Um, especially since both john and paul end up being so hurt by it and they carried a lot of a lot of hurt feelings and baggage about it for the rest of their lives both of them yeah yeah so it's a real big deal um however you want to interpret it and this is you know we're just doing our best interpretation but you know the uh, the quote from harry about john wanting to sleep with paul comes from jeffrey giuliano who doesn't have the best reputation in in land so like if anybody doesn't want to believe it you can choose not to um sure. but giuliano was claiming to quote harry directly in a conversation and also yoko is a primary source and she said the same thing yeah and then you also run up against the idea that well even if even that's if that's so it's not important to the story It doesn't change anything i mean being in love with somebody is the most important thing in the world as far as your relationship with that person goes (laughs) so it (laughs) it would be like the heart of their whole relationship which is the heart of of the whole band so yeah the, the idea that this isn't important to the beatles is crazy yeah it's what could be more important if this is the story it's important that we frame it properly because otherwise yeah. we're telling a bullshit story right you can't just ignore it yeah and like i, res- I respect their privacy i understand that and like i'm i never want to be disrespectful to them i'm not trying to pry into yeah. their business i'm not trying to be disrespectful i'm just trying to tell this story honestly like as i see it and again we're pulling information that exists and just compiling it and and (laughs) and trying to look at the bigger picture it's not you know we're not making anything up here yeah i agree but back to madison square garden (laughs) 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 Yoko was there in the audience. So she saw John on stage calling Paul his estranged fiance. Yeah, she did. She knew all about the show, right? She asked for tickets. May arranged them and sent them to her. And then, like, she even complained about her seats that week. And then afterwards, everybody hooked up. John and May and Yoko. And everybody went to a party together with Elton and, you know, whoever is in the entourage right and um yoko sat at a table with with uh, may and john i think may said that like john and yoko talked for like 20 minutes um and then john and may went home together so yoko and now sean apparently they like to officially end the last weekend here in yoko's telling of this story she surprised john at the show he didn't know she was going to be there and then afterwards their eyes met when they saw each other backstage and they fell back in love and a photographer was there and everybody was blown away by the chemistry between them (laughs) you know (laughs) the rest is his like she's she's pretty good yarn about it yeah Um, And I I have to say, looking at this from Yoko's point of view, um, she actually is John's estranged wife. And John knows she's there in the audience. It wasn't a surprise afterward. (gasps) Yoko, I had no idea. Like, (laughs) that was bullshit. John knows she's there. And there he is up on stage talking about Paul. That could not have felt good. As his wife. She's right. within her bounds to be like, you better get on the phone to Rolling Stone right now. Yeah. Tell them about how you are about to die without me. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is I can understand why Yoko would want to rewrite the story of this entire evening. Yeah. And she wants her version to have primacy and her version is not about Paul, the estranged fiance, her version. And now Sean's version is that Yoko and John got back together here and Paul is never mentioned and because it's their version and it's their lives that's how it's repeated by Beatle people that John and Yoko are done and dusted at this point they're back together they're back in love they love each other more than ever and Sean will shortly be on the way (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yes. so self mythologizing it's so crazy they really are like but why people like love stories does it matter love that conquers it's fake all. Yeah. like we just need to not pay any lip service to what is fake about the relationship <laughs> okay. when there are so many real things what? to talk about instead
1: we we can ex- call exactly
2: out. i don't i'm not and, doing somebody's yeah. pr for them <laughs> right well and and the fact that these people wanted to hide what actually happened and they wanted to replace what actually happened with something else, it's not that it makes them terrible people that we should condemn, but it should be discussed because it tells us about who they were. Like, yeah. if one of your personality traits is mythologizing yourself to the entire world, like that that reflects on you. Honestly, like, I, th- I absolutely think that there is a way to have John and Yoko fandom with a a realistic portrait of them as a couple, rather than like paste it over into this like Hallmark version of, that's what I don't like. It's just like, why? Yeah, exactly. Calling it fake is not, for me, it's not like a moral judgment. It's just that I feel like it's a waste of time. The reality is, way more interesting. Well, it's way more interesting, but it also, it's going to help us understand what's going on with uh, John and Paul. Right. And if, I mean, if, if any of this is worthy of analysis or study, it's worth doing right. And to be fair, they do actually get back together, like within two or three months. So timeline wise, it is pretty close to true. Um, (laughs) if you're yoko and your bottom line is that they got back together and their marriage was stronger than ever and then they had a baby Mm -hmm. and then john was happy for the rest of his life you have to sort of just wrap it up there but if you're trying to figure out what happened between john and paul then that's not what happened we have to tell the story of what's going on with them and John and Yoko getting back together directly impacts John and Paul not getting back together. Nothing is happening in a vacuum here. You know, traditionally, people can accept that uh, John and Yoko's relationship is going to impact John and Paul's. But I don't think that people give enough space to the fact that John and Paul's relationship is also affecting John and Yoko's. Mm. As you said, nothing is happening in a vacuum. So, Well, no one wants to grant Paul that much power influence in John's story. Least of all Yoko Ono for obvious reasons. And then John for slightly more convoluted reasons. So in any case, although they do end up getting back together within a couple of months, there's actually quite a bit more to John and Paul's story. So the end of 1974 sees the final dissolution of the Beatles. This is the finalization of the divorce proceedings initiated by Paul at the end of 1970. George, John, and Paul were all in New York to sign the final agreement. Ringo was signing from the UK. because He couldn't come into the US because he was trying to avoid being served by Alan Klein.
0: <laughs>
2: anyway, um, here's May's take of what was going on with John. One night, John's lawyers visited us at our apartment. Many years had been devoted to negotiating an agreement to dissolve Apple and the lawyers had had innumerable meetings with John. They had answered every one of his questions clearly and had sent him copies of each piece of correspondence concerning the negotiations. The whole experience had been exhausting and extremely difficult. When they were finished, Harold turned to the subject of Lee Eastman. Harold said, Lee Eastman is determined to get Paul out of this agreement. He wants Paul to get his solo royalties directly, and he's willing to pay anything to accomplish this. Because of the fact, this is a really good deal for you, John. In fact, you've come out better than we all thought you would. I think you should sign. I'm just glad it's over, John replied. Let's just get the fucking thing over. After the lawyers left, all John wanted to do was watch television. I knew he didn't want to reflect on any aspect of the official end of The Beatles, and I knew better than to ask any questions. John seemed to be in a very strange state of mind about the dissolution. From the hints he had dropped, since we had been together, I had learned that John's departure from The Beatles had essentially been Yoko's idea. Without Yoko to drive him forward, He felt strangely ambivalent about officially ending the Beatles at that moment. By nature, also, he felt inclined to take a position opposite from that of Paul McCartney. Paul desperately wanted that agreement signed. Whether or not it was the best thing for him to do, John on principle was inclined not to want to sign it. So John balks on the agreement. He says it's because of the tax issue, meaning as a resident of the U.S., he has to pay U.S. taxes which he doesn't want to do because he has to pay double taxes and so of course his Mm -hmm. lawyers are trying to reason with him and they're like john you gotta pay taxes we can't do anything about that what if we could but um but but john digs his heels in and he locks himself in his bedroom and won't let anyone in so maya's standing outside the door talking to him through the door and she writes at that moment, John was at his most unpredictable. Suddenly, his fears that his money was going to be taken away from him, that he was going to be cheated, that he had to have as much money as possible, had all come into play. This was also John's way of resisting the reality that the Beatles were officially about to come to an end and that Paul was about to prevail. I continued to try to coax him to unlock the door, but he would do nothing. And then Mae calls Yoko for help because she you know, she's out of ideas and Yoko's like, huh? Okay. Well, let me think of something. And she writes that half an hour later, John unlocks the door and he comes out and he's very shaky. And he told her that he called the lawyer and told him he wasn't going to sign. And then Julian shows up because they had like a date, John and may take Julian for a walk. And then in the meantime, Yoko has a letter hand delivered to the apartment of course she does john picks it up reads it and she writes his reaction was astonishment yoko's astrologer told her to tell me i shouldn't sign the agreement she's written a letter to warn me isn't that amazing it is amazing (laughs) i replied (laughs) amazing for all the wrong reasons i love that yoko was like "I i know what'll fix this and she was right why would yoko not want him to sign well she it's not that she doesn't want him to sign but when may calls up she's like he's locked himself in the bedroom he's not signing the agreement you know oh and Yoke, i see and yoko was like hang on let me think for a minute and then <laughs> within a couple hours you i know, see this will help john get over the hump of exactly being paralyzed unable to like correct commit. correct got it that makes sense And the weird thing is that because he ultimately signs it, you know, like a month later at Disneyland, like we know that he that he does (laughs) eventually sign it. So, yeah, nothing is accomplished here except he gets to procrastinate. Yeah. But I guess having approval from the astrologer, I'm assuming the takeaway here is that John feels vindicated. Yes. Yes. Even though it's meaningless, it's like the whole thing is just a pointless charade. Just to calm John down, then, like, give him the wherewithal to actually tell the other Beatles that he's not going to come, as opposed to hiding and avoiding and doing nothing. Right. Yes, exactly. So he can can now take action by sending a balloon to the boardroom instead of going (laughs) himself. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So I guess Yoko's kind of just managing his yeah. paranoia at this point yeah he doesn't have to deal with it right now it gets him off the hook right now because maybe she she just intuits that what he needs is a little space to process you know she probably does what he's worried about and absolutely i have huge sympathy for john You're like that's scary divorce cold feet yeah that's a very typical absolutely. story you know, when people are signing divorce papers you know like it's hard yeah. so mm-hmm. Um, I get that he needs more time. And also he probably he wants some assurance that George and Paul are not going to just cut him off at that point and just be like, mm. all right, we got what we wanted. Bye. Oh, yeah. Remember that quote from Paul where he's talking um, about how their relationship is only on paper oh, anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember reading that. I was like, oh, Paul, Paul, do you realize that you just literally put into words? john's greatest fear and that comment to paul's which was to life magazine is in spring of 1971 when the ink is still wet on paul's lawsuit basically right and john is probably still in a state of shock yes that lawsuit yes he did not see that coming but from paul's perspective in 1971 he's been given every reason to think that the other three don't want him particularly john yeah that they don't that they could not care less about him anymore yes yeah well it's, it's sort of especially after lenin remembers well yeah that's the entire <laughs> thesis of of lenin remembers uh, so how sensitive yeah is paul so how be? you know how careful is paul going to be in terms of hurting john's feelings by saying he doesn't want him like john's just right. told the whole world he doesn't want paul so right but knowing what we know now, I can totally see John reading that and having a meltdown and locking himself in his room. Yeah. So the other Beatles learn that John isn't going to sign. George Harrison calls up and screams at him. <laughs> and then Paul Paul calls up and plays good cop and sweet talks him. And then a couple of days later, John decides he wants a private meeting with Lee Eastman. Uh, (laughs) of all things of all things at this moment that's what he wants seriously and everybody can tell from a mile away that's a bad idea except Linda apparently (laughs) who was like great let's do it you know she believes in her dad that he can solve anything she must but Lee Eastman as everybody is probably aware hates (laughs) John Lennon but anyway for whatever reason Lee Eastman grants this meeting (laughs) and there is no, there, there's literally no point to it because John has nothing on his agenda. He just wants to go tell Lee Eastman, suck my dick. You know, like that's not a quote, but you know, it's basically the only point of it. He doesn't yeah. come with like a counter offer or anything. He's just like, I called this meeting to tell you, I don't want to sign. Like, well, I already knew that John, why are you yeah. here? And then Eastman gets all pissed off. He totally overplays his hand and he goes, John, this whole agreement got fucked up because of you. Everybody else is signed. That's why George hates you too. And like, in the meantime, George Harrison calls the office (laughs) and like, tell John I forgive him and I love him. He should come to my party tonight. (laughs) That's really sweet, actually. It is. And John's like, ah, like he's super happy, I guess, because... George isn't mad at him anymore, but also because he's like, fuck you, Eastman C. You don't know shit. (laughs) Yeah, Eastman does not know how to handle John. Well, he definitely does not. (laughs) They should just never be in a room together. As awful as Alan Klein is, Eastman. Yeah. um, He's no cupcake. He's not. And he seems to have a real bad temper, too. So don't send somebody with a bad temper in. to deal with john lennon john lennon yeah who irrationally just hates you like just absolutely hates you let's put gasoline in the same room as a fire and see (laughs) see if they come to a peaceful accord so yeah but i just want to point out that in the meantime john and paul are still hanging out at john's apartment and listening to records and stuff even with the signing of these papers hanging in the air they're still hanging out yeah For example, a few days later, Paul and John invite David Bowie over to John's apartment and they all hang out and listen to Bowie's new album. And there's a funny story about it in May's book. (laughs) John does eventually sign the papers at Disney World with Julian and May on Christmas, as you do. So they do get signed and that sort of ends the year and sort of turns the corner for John and Paul. So what is your take on John's procrastination here and not signing the papers? My take is that first of all, finally putting all this together in my mind chronologically for the first Mm -hmm. time. Thank you, Phoebe. (laughs) (laughs) John balking at finalizing his divorce from Paul happens after John gets up on stage in Madison square garden, calls Paul his estranged fiance in front of Yoko And all of New York. So that happens first. Then, shortly thereafter, is when he refuses to finalize the divorce. And then, after Paul convinces him to sign, that's when John goes back to Yoko. And then, he and Yoko spin the Madison Square Garden concert into being the scene of their own reconciliation. So they appropriate that particular night and make it about, them getting back together like that's worth noting no way that's a coincidence they could have chosen Mm -hmm. any moment to cite as their moment of reconciliation so you think it's a um, sort of a John and Yoko power move against Paul to do that not necessarily against Paul just for their own sake like taking control of their story and being like okay we're moving forward Mm. if we make it about us then we're we're rejecting any sort of power that Paul might have had Uh, do you know what i mean like we're gonna write over that whole oh yeah like that makes sense with their superstitious natures drawing a sigil to you know ward off the evil spirits yeah turn it turn us weakness into strength kind of kind of deal yeah that kind of does make sense because the way that we were just talking about madison square garden like definitely puts john not exactly uh vulnerable position but sort of in the um in the suitor's position you know yeah yeah he's um, gone out on a limb right they don't ever want him to look vulnerable at any time right so like you were saying that's a good way to sort of shift the power back and sort of take control of the narrative yeah exactly exactly yeah and i mean even though there was no other (laughs) possible result of the divorce paper signing it is it is kind of like John said hey Paul you're my fiance and then Paul comes back with I want a divorce not that John didn't want that too on some level it's just I feel like the timing might have stung a little bit to John okay so back to the divorce paper signing which again in May's telling happens before John and Yoko get back together I think John got, just got cold feet about cutting himself off from the other Beatles. Obviously, the financial aspect was an element, like May says, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think you lock yourself in your room because you don't want to pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he didn't. But yeah, that's a good point. That, yeah, that sounds like an emotional semi-breakdown, not fiscal responsibility breakdown. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and it was probably so emotional for him not least because the situation is of his own creation to some extent like he's really run hard up against the wall of the negative consequences of his own actions right because even if it this might not have been sort of the outcome that he wanted he did say i want a divorce yeah, yeah and and not that the breakup is all his fault at all i don't think that at all right 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 yeah. So what do you think about May's comment that from hints he had dropped since we'd been together, I'd learned that John's departure from the Beatles had essentially been Yoko's idea. I I found that surprising, to be honest. And okay, so we need to factor in that this is just May's perception mm. and she likes Paul and Linda. She doesn't like Yoko. But let's, okay, let's say that John did drop hints that that was the case. And let's say that he did genuinely believe that at the time. My take is just just really sad. I think we can safely say and understand that Yoko definitely would have been in favor of the breakup. I don't know, though. I don't know, though. First of all, yes, I think we should for sure just take it with a grain of salt because it's, she's not even quoting him directly she's saying that that's what she gleaned from stuff that he said so from hints, yeah yeah so grain of salt but if it is true it does sort of support the idea that that was a chess move on john's part by saying i want a divorce that it wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily his pure wish it was more of like a, a bargaining chip or his trump card, or, or however you want to say it. Like, his final card to play, where he's like, this will get Paul shaken and get him to clean his act up. Or even, I mean, I feel like John would say incendiary things without any sort of, like, um, long-term game plan. But just to, if he was mad, yeah, yeah. just to throw the, the other party off balance, you know, hurt them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In and knowing what we know about Yoko, like, I can... I can to an extent I can buy that although she insists that she didn't know John was gonna ask say I want a divorce in that meeting which I'm not saying she's lying but um I assume that she was on Klein's side of like let's not say anything yet yeah that's true but but even you know like let's not say anything yet you're basically admitting that like you're holding on to that card
1: until
2: you know the the right opportunity presents itself for you to slam it down on the table you know what I mean well or just that you don't want to tell someone about it yet like you can fully intend to do something eventually but just not want to tip your hand yet but I take your point and it's an important possibility to consider so I think you're saying the same thing that I'm saying well no because because your point is that it's a a bluff, that this card is a bluff. No, 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 not necessarily. I'm just saying that it's a, it's his power move. It's his uh, ace in the hole. If you're like, I'm going to quit my job, you still want to hear their counteroff. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the, the question would be how much of that is, is emotionally driven, which is kind of what we're focused on and how much of it is purely, you know, he does truly want out of the Beatles. He just wants to do it on the terms most favorable to him and that's why he's holding off or i mean it, it could be a situation like you do want to quit your job but that doesn't mean under no circumstances you could be talked back into it if th- if things change so it might be a, a case where john has decided he's going to quit i think he has decided that but still hold open the possibility that paul can talk him back depending on what paul brings as a counteroffer and Even if he's not, he would still want to hear the offer. Whether or not John intended to accept Paul again, it would still hurt that Paul made zero effort to woo him back. And again, it doesn't play out the way that John expects it to. And it ends up in this disaster of, you know, getting served. Yeah. Divorce papers. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So here's an important question about john's last minute panic about signing the papers Mm. does that have anything to do with a hope on john's part that he'll never have to sign i don't think so i mean he could hardly expect paul after all this to be like yeah well let's just not sign these papers and no there's there's no way there's no way yeah and also it's like a you know it's a bad situation for them all to be in. So I, I, they're not a band anymore. They need to have this done. This is old business that just has been hanging and dangling. And then who knows what might happen after that. Yeah. I mean, for John, I really just think that it is the symbolism of Mm -hmm. having nothing to do with each other really legally anymore like i think it's just the the symbolism of signing divorce papers that is just kind of traumatic to him yeah in 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 a way that's not really rational you know he is genuinely concerned about the money um and you know as may says uh he he's just naturally inclined to take a opposite position from paul there i think there's maybe something to that too you know in addition to being you know best friends or partners or whatever they are also adversaries and rivals and whatever so i mean they're competitive right yeah so if nothing if nothing else so i do think for sure there's an element of like well i don't want paul to win and just take everything and i'm standing here like a dick with nothing except a divorce decree you know like (laughs) sure this is kind of humiliating you don't want that either so i there's a bit of that too but i think yeah. as the lawyer has told him like john this is a really good deal for you actually like paul is so eager to be done with this that he's being pretty generous you know yeah which would not necessarily be comforting to yeah if if you're we're looking at it that way yeah exactly right. from like an emotional standpoint that might yeah. feel not great like he's so eager to get away from me great exactly
1: he'll do anything
2: yeah right 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 he'll part with some of that precious precious money that he loves so much yeah which by the way he knows he'll easily earn back from his <laughs> wildly successful solo career yeah he will make more money without you, Whew, which, in my opinion, is probably something John has been worried about since yesterday hit the charts. Yeah, that's that keeps him up at night. And the other thing nobody talks about is like, so as soon as that happens, like John retires after he's no after their money's no longer going into a pot. John's kind of like, well, what's the point? Fuck uh, it. Wow. I feel like he wouldn't he be more motivated because now he has to. If he, was, if he was motivated by putting mo- his own money in his own pocket, then yes. If he's more motivated to compete with Paul and if he feels like when he's part of a working unit with Paul and that they're pooling their resources, if he feels he has to pull his end, mm. that's mm. the question. Is that what's motivating him? Is, the, is the, the lack of being attached to Paul or involved with Paul legally bound to Paul once he's just on his own does he lack that motivation interesting hmm. I never thought about that yeah no, me neither till just now <laughs> Hey, I think maybe we've been sort of circling this which is John's fear of abandonment if he signs these papers and the others don't have to deal with them anymore they're not obligated are they even gonna see him
1: What if they were just
2: humoring him all this time just trying Mm -hmm. to get his signature? Oh, God. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's extreme, but it's John. So even if that isn't a conscious fear. Well, I mean, let's let's refer to that that audio letter that Mimi recorded to him in the 70s, in the early 70s, where she she says, John, how fucking stupid are you? Like, what possible reason would anybody have to be your friend? other than your money how could she say that to him i on like that one letter just is sort of terrifying when you think of john being raised with those sorts of comments from the age of five or whatever that is really fucked up if she's saying to him which to to give her let's give her the benefit of the doubt for a second if she is saying like john wake the fuck up phil Spector and alan klein don't love you they are not your friends they want your money and they are using you as a cash cow you fucking idiot why are you turning your back on george and paul who have been your best friends since you were 15 years old oh do you think that's what she she's not just lumping every person in she's not saying no one on earth would no. Anything to well do with that's you. how that's how i take it because she's also sort I of hope so reprimanding I hope so. him in the same letter she's just like why are you attacking the beatles you know like because she's like remember she's like at least they take care of their families i Ish. hope i hope that that's what she meant she was talking about genuine creepos like yes well and from the same era she's like i don't i don't know what is going on with john and paul but they'll be fine because they've always been best friends and they, they will always make it up and i'm not even worried about that well that's good that makes me feel better about that letter so if she's if she's saying that like john wake up these fucking people you know jerry rubin and all the you know like the new york hippies and like these people are not your friends they're just sort of using you as like either as a poster child for their cause or you know to get publicity or to get money and she's not wrong there are a handful only a handful of people that actually know him and love him and And have his best interests at heart the Beatles and like maybe two or three other people yeah (laughs) and that's it (laughs) yeah i mean to your point though she's not sugarcoating anything she's just like wake up you're you're a clown man yeah there would certainly be a nicer way of saying that yeah no she's not a she's like you can show yeah wh- why john is the way he is like she is yeah. blunt <laughs> yeah so if he that's the environment that he grew up in then he's always going to be worried that he's not lovable basically he's not yeah yeah even george and paul are going to be done with him they've tolerated <laughs> so much for <laughs> so many years yeah that if they have this opportunity to cut him off, that they'll take it. Yeah. Which is why it's so good that as soon as the papers are signed, you know, Paul turns around in January and invites him to New Orleans. Yeah. If John was afraid that Paul was gonna drop them as soon as those papers were signed, then he found out real quick that those fears were unfounded and Paul knows him too. You know what I mean? Like like Yoko obviously knows him super super well, but Paul knows him really well too. I mean, I would assume that Paul understands on some level what John is afraid of, you know? And b- because he intuits that, he reaches out to him immediately. Thanks for listening to another kind of mind. Be sure to tune in for the next installment in our Pizza and Fairy Tale series. In episode three, we'll discuss the reunion in New Orleans that almost was John and Yoko's storied reconciliation and John's retirement from music, hypnosis, primal scream therapy, paranoia, rejections and misunderstandings, birth, death, jealousy, all landmarks on the winding road that leads Paul and John back to a state of estrangement. Get your little ass over to episode three. (laughs) We're going to make you work like a bitch. That's right. We have worked hard every (laughs) fucking day. So you better listen to every fucking episode. (laughs) You little (laughs) ass. Don't have a little ass? You will. (laughs) By the time we're done working it. Whoa. Whoa. Nope. (laughs) Dirty. (laughs)
1: I love you and you, you seem to like, you seem to like, you seem to like.